The founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX is arrested in the Bahamas even as Congress begins investigating the company's collapse. It's Tuesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a lab in California creates what could be nearly limitless energy from nuclear fusion, a technology that could have major implications. The White House has come forward with a bold vision for fusion, the idea that we can, in a decade's time, get fusion you know, on the electricity grid. Also this hour, the improvements to military housing that are part of a new defense spending bill. And a performance piece tries to capture the spirit of anti-COVID lockdown protests in China for an audience in Cambridge. That's the way they can connect with other people. They can have a moment, oh, like I have responsibility to know something else that is not about me. Patriots win, Celtics lose, sunny in the 30s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Securities and Exchange Commission says it has filed charges against the founder and former CEO of bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX. The SEC alleges Sam Bankman-Fried schemed to defraud investors while raising nearly $2 billion. The SEC says other federal agencies are charging him separately. Meanwhile, Bankman-Fried has been arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government. NPR's Giles Snyder reports. The U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams, confirmed Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest by Bahamian authorities, who say the U.S. is likely to seek his extradition. Bankman-Fried has been under investigation ever since FTX's meltdown. Now he's been indicted in New York and is also expected to face separate charges related to violations of securities laws. FTX had been among the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges. It was valued earlier this year at $32 billion. But last month it filed for bankruptcy after it couldn't meet the withdrawal requests of its customers. Bangman Fried is known by his initials SBF. He has acknowledged making mistakes but denies intentional wrongdoing. Trial Snyder, NPR News. President Biden will hold an event at the White House today to sign the Respect for Marriage Act. It codifies marriage rights for interracial and same sex couples. A major winter storm is still hitting the central U.S. There are blizzard conditions in Nebraska, South Dakota, and parts of Wyoming. The National Weather Service says those regions could see more than two feet of snow. Winds will gust more than 40 miles per hour. That same storm system will bring dangerous thunderstorms to the south. National Weather Service forecaster David Roth says that includes heavy rain. There could be flash flooding. Um, This would include cities like Memphis, Shreveport, New Orleans, Jackson, Birmingham, Atlanta. The winter storm system is going to advance next to the Mid-Atlantic and the upper Great Lakes region. California is expected to receive more than $500 million as part of a settlement with Walgreens over its role in the opioid epidemic. From member station KQED, Keith Mizuguchi has more. This is part of a multi-state settlement reached in principle with the retail pharmacy chain. Walgreens is accused of failing to properly oversee the dispensing of opioids at its pharmacies, which the state's claim helped fuel the ongoing opioid epidemic. The state attorney general's office is currently reviewing the terms of a similar agreement with CVS. To date, California's Department of Justice has secured approximately $30 billion through settlements with opioid manufacturers and distributors. For NPR News, I'm Keith Mizuguchi in San Francisco. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, the Dow is up 220 points. 
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A controversial pardon recommendation from Governor Baker is the subject of a hearing at the State House today. The governor's counsel will consider whether to approve pardons for two siblings who were convicted of child sexual abuse decades ago. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, some of those who accused the siblings plan to speak. In the 1980s, Jen Bennett was among the children who testified that Gerald Amaralt abused kids at his family's daycare in Malden. Amaralt spent 18 years in prison, but legal rulings cast doubt on whether the children were manipulated by improper questioning. Bennett plans to tell the governor's counsel today Amaralt should not be pardoned. He was prosecuted by two judges, two juries. He was found guilty. He is a guilty pedophile. That's what they've got to look at. Governor Baker recommended the pardons. Gerald Amaralt was paroled in 2004. Both he and his sister Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre are registered sex offenders. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Dr. Anthony Fauci will be honored today at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute in Dorchester. He'll receive the Institute's annual Award for Inspired Leadership. Adam Hines is CEO of the Institute. He says Fauci is being celebrated for his work during the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s and for his dedicated service throughout the pandemic. He's really exemplifies as a person the steadfast dedication to public service and leadership in the face of challenges, someone who is inspiring others to action. And he really had to do that from the podium day in and day out. And so it's that combination that we're really honored to present him with this award. The award will also be given posthumously to the late Boston Celtics legend and civil rights icon, Bill Russell. The recount in a state House race finds the results unchanged a month after Election Day. Democrat Margaret Scarsdale has won the first Middlesex district race by 17 votes. She beat Republican Andrew Shepard. The Secretary of State's office tells the Boston Herald that was the same margin of victory in its first count. Shepard's campaign says it's considering its next move. The T says it'll begin upgrades to the Newton Highlands Green Line station this spring. The $32 million project aims to make the D branch station more accessible. That includes new ramps and raised boarding platforms that are in compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. The T says the project will be done by the end of 2025. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. The Patriots beat the Cardinals 27-13 to last night in Arizona. The Celtics fell to the Clippers 113-93 in Los Angeles. They'll play the Lakers in L.A. tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins host the New York Islanders. And at the Men's World Cup, the semifinals get, a, get underway this afternoon with Argentina playing Croatia. In your forecast, sunny today with a high in the upper 30s, clear overnight. It'll fall into the 20s, sunny again tomorrow with strong winds. It'll be in the mid-30s. Right now it's 28 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. The Securities and Exchange Commission has charged the former CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX with violating securities laws. Prosecutors say Sam Bankman-Fried orchestrated a massive years-long fraud. NPR's David Gura joins us now. David, hello. Hey, Rob. Walk us through this indictment, David. What does the SEC allege? Well, prosecutors say that Sam Bankman-Fried, who founded FTX in 2019, was defrauding investors in his company and customers who used the site to buy and sell cryptocurrencies. For years, they allege he was, quote, diverting billions of dollars of the trading platform's customer funds for his own personal benefit and to help grow his crypto empire. The SEC says Bankman-Fried took customer money and he used it to make investments. He also bought millions of dollars of real estate with it in the Bahamas, where he was based. And he used it to make substantial political donations. You know, at the center of this, Rob, is an extremely cozy relationship between FTX and a trading firm called Alameda Research, which was essentially... Bankman-Fried's personal crypto hedge fund. The SEC says he was commingling customer funds, using customer money for investments, and when the crypto market soured a few months ago, he used it to plug holes that just kept getting bigger and bigger. This does not sound good. How does this comport with the image that Sam Bankman-Fried projected? You know, this is really central to this indictment. SEC Chair Gary Gensler says in a statement, Sam Bankman-Fried built a house of cards on a foundation of deception, while telling investors that it was one of the safest buildings in crypto. The SEC alleges Bankman-Fried misled investors about what he was doing, what he wasn't doing, and the risk protocols FTX had in place. Prosecutors say Bankman-Fried, quote, held himself out as a visionary leader in the crypto industry and touted his efforts to create a regulated and thriving crypto asset market. They go on to note he conducted an intensive public relations campaign to brand himself and his companies as honest stewards of crypto, Rob. But the SEC says the reality was very different. And David, remind us, how did this all come about? Well, extremely quickly. Remember, FTX imploded and filed for bankruptcy just one month ago. We learned Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government on Monday night. Bahamian police say he was taken into custody without incident at his apartment, and he's scheduled to appear before a judge there today. This is going to be a busy day, with the U.S. attorney for the Southern District announcing criminal charges of its own, another indictment from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. We've known pretty much since FTX imploded that regulators and law enforcement in the U.S., but also in a handful of other countries, have been investigating what happened. And FTX's new CEO, who's shepherding it through bankruptcy proceedings, said in a court filing... FTX has been fielding lots of information requests. Hmm. FTX has more than a million creditors, Rob, and hundreds of millions of dollars have just gone missing. Gosh, what are the implications for the other investigations into FTX? Well, the attorney general in the Bahamas is doing his own investigation. FTX is doing a postmortem. There's been a request in U.S. bankruptcy court for an independent examiner. And then there's Congress. Lawmakers in both the House and the Senate in both parties are digging into this. Bankman-Fried was supposed to appear virtually before the House Financial Services Committee today. Of course, that's not, not in the cards. But the chairwoman of that committee said in a statement the hearing is going to go forward as scheduled. The other witness, John Ray, who is FTX's new CEO, is going to testify as planned. And in his testimony, he says basically what we see laid out in this indictment, that FTX was a total mess with no corporate governance. And what he's trying to do with a new executive team and a new independent board is to track down those hundreds of millions I mentioned just a moment ago that have disappeared. NPR's David Gura. Thanks. Thank you. This morning, U.S. scientists are announcing a big advance in nuclear fusion. 
Now, that's the process that powers our sun, and if, if it could be brought to Earth, it would mean nearly limitless clean energy. Joining us now is NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Rob. So, Jeff, break down this breakthrough for us. Right. So last week at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, scientists did something they've never done in a laboratory setting before. They got more energy out of a nuclear fusion reaction than they put into it. And there are some caveats. Uh, We'll get to those caveats in a minute. But this is a big deal because nuclear fusion is very hard to make happen on Earth. Basically, fusion is the process of sticking lightweight atoms together. When they fuse, when they glom together, they release a ton of energy, but getting them to stick is really tough. This is very exciting. How did they do this? With lasers. It's like the... <laughs> lasers. Classic science. Pew, pew, pew. Laser <laughs> science. Um, they have this multi-billion dollar facility called the National Ignition Facility. It's pretty much the most powerful laser on Earth. And basically, all these laser beams are pointed at one teeny tiny target made of gold and depleted uranium. Inside that target is an even tinier sphere of diamond about the size of a peppercorn. And inside that are different isotopes of hydrogen. So basically, 192 laser beams go in. The energy squeezes all that hydrogen together until it ignites and burns kind of like the head of a match but this is this is a real brute force approach to making uh, nuclear fusion happen this is fascinating how much power did that produce uh well here's the sort of caveat part <laughs> it wasn't all that much okay. so the experiment did generate more power out than the lasers put in but the lasers themselves require a ton of electricity to operate so actually they still ended up using a lot more power than they got out the other end and this is just sort of the start of the problem with this whole laser approach okay i spoke to ryan mcbride a nuclear engineer at the university of michigan and he said if you wanted to make electricity you need to zap several of these diamond targets every second. So it's like, you know, that's that's a lot of pulsing. There's a debris field left as these things are blasted, and you'd have to, like, clear that debris, inject another one, have all the lasers hit it. And you have to do that over and over for days and months and years. And at the moment, they can only zap a target once a week. So okay. power's a long way off. Does this have any other uses? Yeah, it turns out the exploding target is actually like a thermonuclear weapon. And in fact, the main job of the National Ignition Facility, or NIF as it's known, is to make sure our aging nuclear weapons still work. We no longer test nuclear weapons. And so they've built machines like NIF uh, as surrogates to doing actual tests since we haven't tested since 1992. And so this is a big deal for that side of things as well, because it means that weapons physicists can make sure their calculations are correct. So bottom line, Jeff, this sounds huge, like Thomas Edison light bulb huge, but maybe it's not going to change the world just yet. Yeah, it's a big step forward. Uh, But the scientists I spoke to said fusion energy remains decades away. And to put things in perspective, the U.S. is trying to cut its carbon emissions in half by 2030, which is only a few years away. So I don't think this is going to solve the climate crisis. But on the bright side, it does show that humans are good at solving tough problems. So maybe don't count us out just yet. NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Rob. Let's turn now to Dr. Dennis White to ask what this means for the long term. He's the director of the Plasma Science and Fusion Center at MIT. Dr. White, this is being called a breakthrough in the search for limitless clean energy. In a few words, how would you explain this to someone who knows very little about this? 
Right. So <clears throat> in fusion, what you're doing is literally fusing or pushing together uh, these hydrogen uh, atoms. They turn into helium. This is what happens in our, in our sun as well, too. And when that happens, that can release large amounts of net energy. Um, so what we've been, uh, the, the achievement of this, which sounds a little bit like science fiction, that you have to achieve extremely high temperatures, like yeah. over 50 million degrees, um, has, uh, has eluded us about making net energy out of any single um, sort of event of this. So if confirmed the, this morning by the Secretary of Energy, uh, this is indeed a breakthrough. Later this morning, we expect to hear scientists say that they've achieved ignition. What does that mean? Right. So um, the, the definition uh, varies slightly between the different ways that you approach fusion. Um, but the, uh, <clears throat> the definition that was provided by the National Academies was that for this particular uh, approach to fusion, which uses la lasers, that when the amount of fusion energy exceeded the input laser energy, then that was the definition of ignition. Um, there's various other, other definitions which matter for making it economically viable. And as I understand it, they're generating no electricity and they are using vastly more electricity than they get out in fusion, but the lasers need a lot of electricity, right? So this experiment still took energy off the grid? That's, that's correct. I mean, to be clear, they were not even attempting to make uh, electricity out of it. Uh, and Got in it. fact, this is one of the other aspects that needs to um, improve is that, is that you need to get uh, fairly high levels of gain to make this a viable uh, energy source, um, uh, you know, to be a practical power plant. But getting over the threshold scientifically of seeing net energy is a major accomplishment because you see for the first time sort of the physical conditions of which will be required for a power plant as we extrapolate forward. Dr. White, given what we know now, how long do you estimate it'll take for scientists to be able to replicate this discovery on a broader scale so that societies can actually use this type of energy? And what steps will we need to take to do that? Right. Well, the exciting thing is that this has been pursued, um, you know, by science, scientists uh, around the world, including in the United States, obviously, um, for many decades. And we've made uh, important progress scientifically towards this. But what's what's changed in the context of this, of, of, of what we think we anticipate with this announcement is that indeed uh, the advent of a private sector in, in fusion also indicates about both the push and the uh, you know f uh, because of climate change um, and the and the pull that's coming from the commercial sector about getting to the point where we can actually put this on the grid and there is a push to try to do this within the next decade it is difficult the technology is difficult but these are these kinds of advances that, that provide hope to us that in fact we're on the right path dennis white is the director of the plasma science and fusion center at mit dennis thank you but this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, gene editing using the CRISPR technology is offering new hope in the fight against cancer. It's 719. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium 
purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars. Because every instrument has a story, you can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. And the trustees, with exciting properties across Massachusetts, adventure is in their nature. You can begin your quest at thetrustees.org slash explore. A California entrepreneur is building affordable homes in South Central Los Angeles at half the usual cost. How? By saying no to public funding. Low-income communities need development. They need new capital. But they need it to be done in a way that really benefits the entire community. And one of the underlying principles we have is same neighbors, better neighborhoods. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny with a high near 40 today. There might be some gusty winds. It'll still be windy tonight when we'll have mostly clear skies and a low around 23. Tomorrow, sunny and windy with a high near 36. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox for lovers of British TV, offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com gifting. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez. The gene editing technique known as CRISPR has been showing promise for treating a variety of genetic disorders such as sickle cell disease. Now doctors appear to be making progress using CRISPR to fight some cancers as well. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein got exclusive access to tell the stories of two of the first patients who seem to have benefited. Katie Popecop tried everything after being diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma five years ago. Round after round of chemo, a stem cell transplant, but nothing could beat it. I went back to get a PET scan, and that's when they found that my non-Hodgkin's had blown back up, which was very disappointing. Victor Bartolome also suffered through decades of chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant to keep his blood cancer at bay. But eventually, his doctors told him he had run out of options. That was devastating. Imagine having what you think is your last, your last hope pulled out from under you. But then Cop, who's 64 and lives in Parkville, Missouri, and Bartolome, who's 74 and lives in Santa Barbara, California, heard about something new. Doctors were using the gene editing technique CRISPR, which lets them make very precise changes in DNA to genetically modify immune system cells to fight cancers like theirs. Cop jumped at the chance, even though she long relied on homeopathy instead of mainstream medicine. I'm like, yeah, sign me up. I'll be your guinea pig. <laughs> Bartolome, a former NBA basketball player, was game two. It sounded like something from a science fiction movie. 
I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> so Cobb and Bartolome volunteered for studies testing CRISPR to advance one of the most exciting developments in cancer treatment in decades, known as CAR-T. CAR-T is called living drugs because it uses living immune system cells from cancer patients that have been genetically engineered to attack their tumors. Dr. Joseph McGurk is an oncologist at the University of Kansas who treated COP. In contrast to drugs, this is a living therapy. You're injecting into your patient a drug that is alive, that can persist for weeks to months, and sometimes beyond that to years. McGurk and others hope CRISPR can make better CAR-T living drugs that are more potent, that work against more kinds of cancers, and that are off the shelf, made in huge batches that can be ready right away for any patient. Now, patients have to wait weeks for CAR-T cells that are tailor-made individually from their own cells. These patients have aggressive diseases, don't have time on their side. And so some patients will become too sick to receive the therapy or die before the therapy can be generated in a laboratory. Off-the-shelf CAR-T could also be much less expensive. I'm totally excited about this. This would be a, um, you know, a game changer. Dr. Carl June is a CAR-T cell pioneer at the University of Pennsylvania who is not involved in the studies that Cobb and Bartolome volunteered for. It's very exciting because now not everybody is eligible because of their own immune system being damaged and then other people because they have rapidly advancing cancer can't be treated because of the time required to manufacture the cars. And finally, the huge issue is cost. If we can reduce the cost of this, it'll be much more available. Here's how it works. Doctors take immune system cells known as T-cells from healthy donors and use CRISPR to reprogram them to do three things. Number one, leave the healthy cells in patients' bodies alone. Number two, hide from the recipient's own immune systems. And number three, zero in and destroy whatever cancer patients are fighting. Here's Dr. McGurk again. The T-cell sucks up against the cancer cell, releases molecules that essentially punch holes in the cancer cell, and releases small enzymatic machinery. You can think of them as Pac-Man. They race through those holes, and they go in and they chop up the DNA of the cancer cell, and the cancer cell dies. On Monday, McGurk presented the latest results of his research, showing that the approach shrank tumors in two-thirds of 32 patients with the same kind of blood cancer COP had. 40% experienced a complete remission, including COP. The study Bartolome volunteered for, involving 18 patients, has produced similar results for patients with T-cell lymphoma. This is the most exciting, just extraordinary time of my entire career. And I've always been excited by the work that we've been doing, but this is unprecedented. Now, not everyone is as enthusiastic. The off-the-shelf CAR T-cells don't appear to last as long and may not be as effective as the original versions using patients' own cells. Dr. James Kokendorfer is at the National Cancer Institute. That's kind of like the main problem we have here. It is faster. It is more convenient logistically, perhaps less expensive. But then you have this fundamental issue of persistence. That's a fundamental problem that you cannot completely overcome that no matter what you do. McGurk and others acknowledge that more research is needed involving more patients to figure out just how well the approach works and how to make the cells last longer and work better. When you consider that the overwhelming majority of these patients would have died that's a big advance. None of us are satisfied with that. We need to do better, better, better. The shortcomings could be overcome by giving patients more than one infusion, for example. 
and others think this is just the beginning of using CRISPR to treat a wide variety of cancers. Fyodor Ernov is a gene editing researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. The prospects are much brighter than anyone could have dreamt of 10 years ago. This field is progressing remarkably fast. For their part, Kopp and Bartolome are thrilled. Kopp's been in remission for more than two years. You know, I've been a homeopathic all my life, pretty much, and now I joke, you know, I'm genetically modified, you know, but this little vial of cells can change my life? Wow. Just truly medical miracle. Bartolome says he'll never forget the day doctors told him they couldn't find a trace of cancer in his body. That was more than a year ago. It was a life-changing event, and I was bubbling up inside, that's for sure. That was a great day, and every day since then, I just thank my lucky stars. Rob Stein, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, new numbers to be released by the Labor Department today are expected to show that prices continue to rise rapidly, but not as rapidly as earlier this year. It's 729. Join On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty tomorrow night at City Space for a conversation on anti-aging research with Harvard genetics professor David Sinclair. Both in-person and virtual tickets are available at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Securities and Exchange Commission says it's charging Sam Bankman-Fried with scheming to defraud investors. The founder and former CEO of the now-failed cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, was arrested yesterday in the Bahamas. The Federal Reserve is expected to announce another hike in interest rates this week. The Fed kicks off its latest policy meeting today. Ahead of that meeting, NPR's Scott Horsley says the Labor Department will report on consumer prices for November. The average price of gasoline fell by about 25 cents a gallon during November, and pump prices have continued to slide in the weeks since. Unfortunately, some of those savings have been gobbled up by higher prices at the supermarket, especially in the produce department. Wholesale vegetable prices soared more than 38 percent last month. The new inflation data come as the Federal Reserve is preparing to raise interest rates this week for the seventh time in nine months. While food and gasoline prices often bounce up and down, the Fed is concerned about the rising price of services, which tend to be stickier. By making it more expensive to borrow money, the central bank hopes to tamp down demand and bring prices under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. United Airlines says it's ordering 100 of Boeing's new 787 airliners in a move to expand its international reach. United is calling it the largest order on record by a U.S. airline for wide-body planes. This is NPR News. 
The White House says President Biden has spoken with the family of Paul Whelan, the former U.S. Marine who was arrested in Russia four years ago on espionage charges. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. continues to seek Whelan's release. The big challenge we had over the course of the past several months is that what Russia was asking for to secure Paul Whelan's release was not something that we had to be able to give. A U.S.-Russia prisoner exchange last week won the release of U.S. Olympian and WNBA star Brittany Griner. The Energy Department says it's planning a major announcement today at a lab in California where government scientists are reporting a breakthrough in the area of nuclear fusion. Here's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Last week at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, scientists did something they've never done in a laboratory setting before. They got more energy out of a nuclear fusion reaction than they put into it. And there are some caveats, but this is a big deal because nuclear fusion is very hard to make happen on Earth. Basically, fusion is the process of sticking lightweight atoms together. When they fuse, when they glom together, they release a ton of energy, but getting them to stick is really tough. Scientists caution potential applications in the power industry remain decades away. Dow futures are up more than 200 points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congressman Jake Auchincloss believes federal regulators should have done a better job cracking down on cryptocurrency exchanges. He says that could have prevented the collapse of the FTX exchange. Its founder was arrested in the Bahamas. Auchincloss is on the House Financial Services Committee, which will hold a hearing today into FTX. He says he tried to raise warning flags about the crypto industry a year ago. In October of 2021, I asked the SEC chairman what new laws he needed to better enforce compliance against crypto exchanges. He said none. He had what he needed. And yet it was clear that they were going after minnows while whales were swimming through. The congressman adds he does not plan on returning campaign contributions from FTX. Here, our entire interview with Jake Auchincloss coming up in our next hour of Morning Edition. Massachusetts lawmakers are pushing to create a publicly funded baby bond program. It would open a trust fund for eligible lower-income residents at birth. They'd be able to access the money once they became adults. Lawmakers say the money would need to be spent on things like college or buying a home. Recipients would also need to have ties to the state as adults to cash in. Televisions and public places in Boston will now be required to keep closed captioning on at all times. Mayor Michelle Wu signed the ordinance yesterday. It was unanimously passed by the city council last week. Council President Ed Flynn first proposed the measure. He says such a policy will improve access for people with disabilities. According to Flynn, the new rules have received relatively little pushback from restaurant and bar owners. They help bring neighborhoods together. They employ so many people. And uh, generally speaking, I think they're on board because they they know that this is a civil rights issue as well. At least half a dozen other cities have similar measures in place. It's 735. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. 
More at PlymouthRock.com. The Patriots snapped their two-game losing streak last night. They beat the Cardinals 27-13 to in Arizona. The Pats will stay out west and visit the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday. The Celtics lost to the Clippers 113-93 last night in Los Angeles. Tonight, the Celts play L.A.'s other team, the Lakers. The Bruins are back home tonight to skate with the New York Islanders. Clear skies, windy and near 40 today. Mostly clear tonight, still windy with mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny, mid-30s, mostly cloudy and mid-40s on Thursday. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about human connection and the magic of cinema. Now playing in select theaters. And from Bed Bath & Beyond with kitchen products too, featuring a curated selection of brands including Shark, Ninja, and Casper. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. We'll get an update on inflation this morning from the government's official price checkers. In November's Consumer Price Index figures come out just as the Federal Reserve is preparing for another boost in interest rates. Inflation was likely a little bit tamer than the month before, but overall prices are still climbing at a rapid rate. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us this morning to talk about what we're going to see. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Rob. Scott, we've all seen the drop in gasoline prices in recent weeks. Is that going to keep inflation in check? It certainly helps. Uh, Unfortunately, some of the savings that people are enjoying at the gas station are being gobbled up at the grocery store, especially in the produce department. Uh, The wholesale price of vegetables jumped by a whopping 38% last month. That's largely due to an insect-borne virus in California that put a big dent in the lettuce crop. A produce distributor, Brian Garino, says a wholesale box of lettuce that typically sells for about $25 or $30 on the East Coast is now selling for as much as $100. I've never seen it like this. I've seen it go $80, $85. I've never seen triple digits, though. It's just crazy. I mean, you can't put lettuce on a hoagie and, and, and expect not to put an upcharge on it when you're paying $100 for 24 heads of lettuce. Some restaurants are substituting less expensive kale for pricey lettuce, huh. although Garina told me who wants to eat <laughs> kale compared to romaine. Lettuce prices should start to come down as more of Arizona's crop comes on the market, but in the meantime, you're going to have to shell out some extra green for the greens. Uh, is, is anything coming down in price besides gasoline? Yes, we continue to see falling prices for things like used cars, which were a big driver of inflation last year. In fact, goods prices overall are not climbing nearly as fast as they were earlier this year. Uh, There's also some relief on the horizon when it comes to housing. Uh, This is going to take some time to show up in the official inflation numbers. But when you look at actual rental prices in the market, they're not climbing as fast as they were in the spring. Selma Hepp, who's with the housing data firm CoreLogic, says that's partly because rents are already so high, some people have just been priced out of finding their own place. People are now, as a result of high rents, doubling up again. So we're seeing an increase in number of people who are moving in with roommates. Hepp says the slowdown is particularly noticeable in places where rents had been climbing the fastest, like Miami and Phoenix. Scott, will uh, the November numbers have any effect on the Federal Reserve as it tries to get these prices under control? 
you know, the Fed still has a ways to go, even though goods prices are starting to level off, and even though they're encouraging signs about housing prices, uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is worried that the price of services is still going up. And we spend a lot of money on services, everything from health care to haircuts. So Powell is concerned those price hikes are keeping overall inflation much too high. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation is imposing significant hardship straining budgets, and shrinking what paychecks will buy. This is especially painful for those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials like food, housing, and transportation. So tomorrow the Fed is expected to raise interest rates again. That's the seventh rate hike in nine months. Fed officials have been very clear borrowing costs will likely go up and stay up longer if that's what it takes to tamp down demand and bring prices back under control. It's sort of the central bank's version of kale. Uh, Maybe a little (laughs) tough. But ultimately, it's supposed to be good for you. It is. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. Twitter owner Elon Musk says he's pulling back the curtain on how the social network has handled some high-profile decisions on what you can and cannot tweet. He released internal documents to a hand-picked group of journalists who've been digging through them and posting excerpts on Twitter. But is this corporate transparency or just the latest attention-grabbing stunt by the billionaire CEO? NPR correspondent Shannon Bond joins us. Shannon, okay, for listeners who uh, might not be familiar, what are the Twitter files? Yeah, as you said, they're internal documents. These are emails and Slack chats, and they show Twitter employees, most of whom are no longer at the company, discussing the company's policies and some of these really fraught calls they've had to make in recent years, including the decision to ban then-President Donald Trump after the January 6th Capitol attack, as well as some details about how Twitter limits the reach of some users, including well-known right-wing accounts that have broken its rules. Now, many Republicans have long claimed they are being censored on social media, even though Twitter's own internal research has found its algorithms favor right-leaning political content. And so Musk and those that he's given access to have framed these documents as this bombshell, as proof that Twitter has, in fact, intentionally suppressed conservatives for politically motivated reasons. All right, Shannon, so now that we have a a peek behind the Twitter curtain, what uh, was new to you? Well, you know, I've covered social media for a while, and this is, you know, an interesting look inside these high-stakes, controversial moderation processes, but it's not a bombshell. I mean, take Twitter's decision in 2020 to briefly block people from sharing a New York Post story based on Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, that was controversial. The company said very publicly later it was a mistake how it had handled this. And these new internal documents, they show Twitter employees struggling with what to do in that case and questioning their own policies. Now, the audience for these files seems to be Elon Musk's conservative supporters. So how are they receiving this? Yeah, I mean, for many of them, the mere existence of these internal discussions is the smoking gun. And that's certainly how Musk is framing this. And it's quickly gotten quite ugly. You know, Musk is using this project, which purports to be about transparency, in part to harass people he disagrees with. And he's giving his followers easy targets to go after. Over the weekend, he attacked Twitter's former head of safety, Yoel Roth, who features heavily in these documents, as well as Dr. Anthony Fauci. Musk says he will feature in future installments of the Twitter files. And in both cases, Musk endorsed conspiracy theories and has triggered violent threats against both men. So if Musk is critiquing Twitter's old management, their previous management, what is he doing differently? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, right? Because for better or worse, the old Twitter did have a set of policies and processes, and it didn't always follow them, but it did have them. Under Musk, it's really kind of whatever he wants to do. You know, he's in control. Just yesterday, he dissolved the company's Trust and Safety Council, this outside advisory group. At the same time, he's endorsed some existing policies that the Twitter files have cast as censorship, like limiting the visibility of tweets that break the rules. And he's also reinstated thousands of accounts that had been banned for breaking the rules, including former President Trump, as well as neo-Nazis and white nationalists and QAnon promoters. At the same time, he says he won't let Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, or Kanye West back on the platform. But instead of talking about any of these decisions Musk is making now, we're talking about what Twitter did a couple years back. And for me, that's the biggest takeaway. Musk is using Twitter to get people talking about Twitter on Twitter. <laughs> NPR's Shannon Vaughn, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Senate takes up the annual defense spending bill, which, among many other things, would rescind a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for military members. And in our next hour, why Tunisians are risking their lives and often losing them to cross the Mediterranean to Europe. In your forecast, near 40 today and windy under sunny skies. Mostly clear tonight with continuing gusty winds and temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny, windy, and mid-30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 745. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing for people's education and retirements for 95 years and proud sponsor of the Summer Search Program, providing year-round mentoring, life-changing experiences, college advising, and lasting support for resilient, low-income high school students, inspiring them to become responsible, altruistic leaders. Now in business news, the Museum of Science in Boston is entering the metaverse with a new immersive Mars game. The Mission Mars experience is available to play now online. It was created in partnership with the video game developer Roblox. The Museum of Science says the technology is part of its goal to reach people where they are without them having to step foot in the museum. One of Massachusetts's largest cannabis operators is mourning the unexpected death of its CEO. Norwood-based Merrimed says Robert Fireman died on Sunday. The 74-year-old led the company since 2017. Merrimed says it does not yet have a plan to replace him. A landmark Chinese restaurant in Central Square, Cambridge, is closing its doors after 40 years in business. The owners of Mary Chung say they are ready to retire. The restaurant will close on New Year's Eve. It's 746. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Senate is preparing to vote on the annual defense bill. Now, this year's bill includes items such as pay raises for service members and addresses issues around substandard housing. It'll also change how the military prosecutes sexual harassment and assault cases and also do away with a COVID vaccine mandate. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo is here with more. I can start off by telling us more about how this funding will help improve some of the quality of life issues faced by service members. Mm-hmm. Lawmakers say that about $18 billion are expected to go towards building and fixing military housing, child care centers, and training facilities. Here's Georgia Senator John Ossoff talking about why this funding is important and what it could address. Too many of our service members live in decrepit barracks facilities that have not been adequately maintained, that are moldy and in some cases dangerous to live in. Too many of our military families drop their kids off at aging child care centers. Too many of our military service members have to carry out vital training and operations at aging and inadequate facilities on our bases. This money could include repairs to roads, utilities, pavement, and structural deficiency of wharfs and barracks. Uh, And the legislation also directs a 4.6 pay raise. All right. Now, in addition to addressing how they live, it's also going to address how they eat. Yes. So one in six military and veteran families were experiencing food insecurity or hunger in 2021, according to a military family advisory network survey. And this bill specifically, it expands the basic need allowance that they receive by raising the income eligibility limit to 150% of the poverty level, which is an increase from the current 130% limit. So the idea is more people could qualify. It also allows the Secretary of Defense to expand eligibility to households making less than 200% of the federal poverty level under certain circumstances. Now, finally, there is also health care related benefits for federal emergency responders who are included under this legislation. Jimena, tell us about uh, those provisions. Sure. One definitely comes to mind. So currently, Forest Service and Interior Department firefighters don't have the same job-related disability and retirement benefits as many of their state and civilian counterparts. Those benefits would help cover them if they develop lung cancer or other diseases. One part of the bill changes this for about 10,000 workers. In order to receive disability benefits, federal firefighters are required to go through a really long claims process to get federal workers' compensation and retirement benefits. That includes paperwork, witnesses, and a lot of red tape, even though there's a long history of many diseases being connected to firefighting. Here's Reva Duncan, Executive Secretary of Grassroots Wildland Firefighters, an advocacy group that has been pushing for higher pay and benefits. Most people don't even bother with the claim because it's just, it's so hard, so time consuming, and they're rarely ever accepted that most people don't bother. They just do a GoFundMe fundraiser. This also comes at a time when the wildline firefighters are facing really big retention issues, in large part because of missing health protections or pay shortages. Federal wildland firefighters are the first line of defense in, on all public lands, but they are also at the ready to back up local and state forces at a moment's notice. So this backup and, and bolster in health care and in health benefits is, is kind of a big deal here. NPR's politics reporter, Jimena Bustillo, thanks a lot. Thank you.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition at the Pit in Harvard Square, an attempt today to bring the spirit of anti-COVID lockdown protests in China to Cambridge. And a local writer reflects on a new appreciation for boring days. It's 751. I'm Robin Young. There's never been a way to screen for certain cancers like pancreatic and ovarian, but a new blood test in the pipeline is having success. With advances in technology, and particularly something called next-generation sequencing, we can now pick out minute amounts of specific DNA fragments from cancer. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In a few minutes, a group of 100 endangered sea turtles will leave Marshfield. The group is being flown to Mississippi and Florida. The turtles were found on the Cape, stunned by cold ocean water. They were rehabilitated by the New England Aquarium so they could be healthy enough to fly south for the winter. Sunny, windy, and upper 30s today. Still windy tonight with mostly clear skies in mid-20s. Tomorrow, mid-30s, sunny with more high winds. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 752. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shnoy. Late last month, Chinese citizens took up a creative means of protest over the nation's strict zero-COVID policy. To subtly express dissent, protesters have been holding up blank pieces of paper. Their ingenuity inspired a local artist to stage a public art demonstration planned for this afternoon. WBUR's Lauren Williams has more. Yolanda He Yang was born and raised in mainland China, and watching the protests from afar gave her a visceral feeling. Every piece of skin, muscles in my body, like I feel super jittery. And that's the time I realized, oh, just reading all these news about blank paper protests, about what's going on in my home, it really affects me in a very intense way. Yang is a visual artist with a focus on public art, so she decided that the best way to express her feelings was in public. Yang performed in New York over the weekend. Today, she'll do it again in Harvard Square. MIT student and musician Brabiba Wong plays a harsh tune on the violin. At the same time, Yang writes a phrase in both English and Chinese on glass in white paint. The phrase reads, You know what I want to say. Her art is an expression of her personal feelings, and she's taking cues from the protesters to shape her movements. I kind of imitated how people going for protests holding a piece of paper or slogan. They want to hold it very high because they want to be seen. Five dancers will perform alongside her with simple choreography to help draw attention to her scribbles. After a few minutes, Young's glass will be covered in white paint, a nod to the blank pieces of paper she watched fill her hometown streets from afar. But it's not only white paint, it's, it's all the gathered voices. 
Her performance attempts to capture the spirit of the protests. It's a bridge between here and there. That's the way they can connect with other people. And that's the way they can, they can have a moment, oh, like I have responsibility to know something else that is not about me. Young's studio practice is a solitary place where she can think and heal. Her public art practice is the inverse, encouraging people to connect with one another. For her, the two go hand in hand. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. Young performs at the Pitt in Harvard Square this afternoon at 3. The holiday season can be an especially busy time with family obligations and end-of-year work deadlines. Our to-do list can feel endless. Sometimes it takes a near tragedy to remind us of how fragile life can be. That's exactly what happened to novelist Holly Robinson when her husband fell gravely ill with a mysterious illness. As we round out our celebration of WBUR's Ideas and Opinions page, here's her essay, first published in 2016. You know how it is. You get up in the morning and grumble because there's too much to do. The dog wants a walk. You have to crowbar the kids off to school. The breakfast dishes need to be washed. And the traffic on your commute is worse than ever. Meanwhile, another day goes by. And then another and another with occasional bright spots. That weekend hike, dinner with friends, work goals met. How are you, people ask. Fine, you answer, or maybe if it's a good friend. Busy and overwhelmed, but okay. And everything really is fine until it's not. My husband, Dan, hurt his elbow on a trip to Home Depot a while back. He banged it hard while hoisting a toilet up onto a shelf. His elbow got bigger and redder, and before long, it looked like a clown's nose was attached to his arm. The doctor took one look and put him on oral antibiotics, but things didn't improve. His fever persisted, and his arm continued to swell. Pretty soon, the redness spread all the way from his wrist to his armpit. Dan ended up being hospitalized with an antibiotic-resistant staph infection, the sort of bacteria that can go systemic and kill you quickly. We were lucky. We live near doctors and good hospitals with laboratories that can do magical things like culture bacteria to figure out exactly which drugs can kill it. Dan had to stay in the hospital for five days with an IV hooked up to his arm. He came home with a pump in an oversized black fanny pack that dispensed antibiotics directly into his blood every four hours. The pump made whirring and beeping noises like the Roomba vacuum we used to have. We eventually nicknamed it Robert. He had to wear the thing for four weeks. He hung it on his side of the bed while he slept. We joked around, but every time I heard the pump whir, I looked at my husband and reminded myself that everything is fine in life until one day it isn't. Dan made it, but so many others don't. And who knows what's around the corner for us. Life always has surprises in store. Pray for boring days, my grandmother used to say. I never really knew what she meant. Now I think I do. 
As I lean my head against Dan's shoulder, I'm reminded that what really matters is the beating of your loved one's heart. Novelist Holly Robinson is a contributor to Cognoscenti, WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. Read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. Funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries. Free Sundays and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. wbur Boston's NPR news station. Scheduled to testify before Congress, the founder of the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX has instead been arrested in the Bahamas. It's Tuesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Congress will still hold a hearing into the FTX collapse. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss says federal regulators have to do a better job at oversight. They need more resources, clearly, but they also need to be prioritizing going after the whales, not the minnows. Also this hour, thousands of Tunisians are trying to cross the Mediterranean into Europe, and many aren't making it. It's always the fisherman who's in the front line and who brings the bodies. I personally brought 280 from the sea to the shore. And the White House hosts a summit of African leaders in the ongoing race for influence against China and Russia. In sports, the Patriots win, Celtics lose. Sunny, windy, and 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Securities and Exchange Commission has unveiled charges against the founder and former CEO of bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Sam Bankman-Fried is accused of raising $1.8 billion from investors while scheming to commit fraud. He's expected to face more charges from federal prosecutors, and he has been arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government. Bankman-Fried was supposed to be the star witness today for a House committee investigating the company's spectacular collapse. NPR's David Gura reports the committee is going ahead anyway with its hearing. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, the chair of the House Financial Services Committee, says in a statement she was surprised to hear Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. government. On Capitol Hill, Bankman-Fried's successor, John Ray, will answer questions from Waters and her colleagues about what he's learned since he took over one month ago. In prepared testimony, Ray says he hadn't seen such an utter failure of corporate controls. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Policymakers for the Federal Reserve convene their final two-day meeting of the year today. Steve Beckner says the central bank is still focused on reining in inflation and is expected to continue raising interest rates. Since it stopped holding the federal funds rate near zero in March, the Fed has raised that key short-term rate by three and three-quarters percentage points. 
With inflation still far above its 2% target, the Fed is apt to lift rates again, perhaps less aggressively. Chairman Jerome Powell and his colleagues will revise their projections, which will show how much higher they expect to hike rates. Steve Beckner prepared that report. Later today, the Labor Department is due to release its latest numbers on consumer prices in the U.S. for November. President Biden will host a ceremony on the South Lawn of the White House later this afternoon. NPR's Asma Khalid reports he will sign legislation protecting marriage rights for interracial and same-sex couples. The bill passed with bipartisan support in both the House and Senate. The White House has described it as a historic piece of legislation. It'll provide federal protection for same-sex and interracial marriages and ensure marriages conducted in one state are recognized in another. A Supreme Court decision in 2015 found that same-sex marriage is constitutionally protected. But Congress's decision to put these protections explicitly into law comes after the Dobbs decision earlier this year. That's when the Supreme Court struck down abortion, which had not been codified into law, and widespread inconsistencies in state laws were exposed. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The big winter storm pounding the central United States is now creating dangerous weather in Texas and in Oklahoma. Tornado warnings have been issued there in the past few hours. A tornado has been confirmed in Oklahoma. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congressman Seth Moulton is calling for continued support of Ukraine in its battle against Russia. Moulton and a bipartisan group of members of Congress just returned from a weekend trip to Ukraine. Moulton says support for the war has waned in Congress among the political fringes of both major parties. As the war has united uh, the center of Washington, in some ways it's also united the extremes. And we've got to make sure that we hold to the center, uh, that we keep the support going, that we give the Ukrainians what they need to win this fight for their freedom. Democrats will lose their majority in the House when the new Congress is sworn in next month. Moulton worries that far-right Republicans could convince Republican leadership to curtail support for Ukraine. The Anti-Defamation League of New England is critical of a new FBI report showing a drop in hate crimes last year. That's because large areas of the country, including Florida, New York City and Los Angeles, didn't report any data. Peggy Shakur with the ADL says New England has seen a spike in hate crimes. Boston reported 111 hate crimes, which is a significant increase from the 44 reported in 2020. The fact that there was robust reporting gives us more confidence in the data that we have from the state of Massachusetts. The Justice Department echoes those concerns, saying the FBI report does not paint a complete and accurate picture of hate crimes. State gambling regulators are wrestling with some gray area in the new sports betting law. The issue has to do with promotional credits that betting sites sometimes offer gamblers to use to place bets. WBUR's Rob Lane explains. Massachusetts sports betting bill doesn't specify whether the portion of promotional money that sports books recoup should be taxed in the same way as other gaming revenue. Some members of the Gaming Commission argue that if lawmakers wanted to enable tax write-offs for promotional play, they would have written it into the legislation. But Commissioner Bradford Hill says that's not necessarily true because the bill was crafted under a time constraint. There are some things that weren't included in the bill because of the horse trading that was taking place on that last night. And let's be frank, four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. 
Experts say state revenue from sports betting could be much lower if commissioners elect not to tax promotional play. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Massachusetts will start teaching new drivers about the risks of driving under the influence of cannabis. The course will be part of normal driver's ed classes. It'll roll out to all driving schools in the state next month. Massachusetts is the first state where recreational marijuana is legal to update its driver's ed program to include cannabis. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team. The Patriots improved their record to 7-6 and six last night. They beat the Cardinals 27-13 to in Arizona. The Pats will visit the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday. The Celtics fell to the Clippers 113-93 last night in Los Angeles. The Seas take on the Lakers tonight in L.A. Also tonight, the Bruins host the New York Islanders. Sunny today with a high in the upper 30s, clear overnight. It'll fall into the 20s. Sunny again tomorrow with strong winds. It'll be in the mid-30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. We're in Tunisia this week, a country seen as a budding democracy after a wave of mass revolts against autocrats spread through the Middle East and North Africa. The protests that sparked it all started right here, almost exactly 12 years ago, and led to the overthrow of a strong man. But today, Tunisia appears to be returning to autocracy under the populist president, Kais Saeed. He got rid of the parliament, consolidated power, and is arresting his political opponents. Measures the president says are necessary to preserve democracy and address the socioeconomic crisis. But Tunisia's embattled political parties and rights groups say that a parliamentary election this weekend could cement Saeed's power grab. So, after years of political infighting, as Tunisians' daily lives get more and more expensive, many are choosing to leave. More than 45,000 this year have risked their lives and sometimes lost them trying to cross the Mediterranean to Italy. We start in the coastal city of Zarziz, in the southeast, where a fisherman-turned-cafe owner, Lutfi bin Mohammed Isa, serves small cups of black coffee. His shop overlooks the harbor, where his colleagues prep their boats with nets and traps for the morning. For 41 years, the sea has been his livelihood in a city where most people fish, farm, or work in a tourism industry that caters to all-inclusive beach vacationers. The sea is how bin Mohammed Isa fed and educated his two daughters, one a doctor, the other a banker, and his son. But in the last decade, the sea has shown him things he wishes he could forget. We we see bodies. When we go fishing, we find bodies. It's always the fisherman who's in the front line and who brings the bodies. When was the last time you or one of your colleagues found a body in the sea? I'm sorry, I can't talk about it. 
every time I find a body, I sometimes spend a week I can't sleep. It's it's very traumatizing. Because you didn't get into, you're not supposed to see that. Yeah, we're supposed to fish fish, not bodies. I personally brought 280 African migrants from the sea to the shore. It even happened that once a lady uh, gave birth on my boat. At first, it was mostly people from other parts of Africa taking the risky route to escape famine and violence, he says. But in the past few years, he says more and more Tunisians are leaving because they see no future. People, when they go to the sea, they know that they may die. It's 50-50. That's a huge risk for young people to take a 50-50 chance of life or death. Why would they take that chance? When young people have a dream, they are in a trance state. They don't think about death anymore. All they think about is how to make money, how to make their families happy, how to stop their mothers from working in houses and their fathers from working in construction. Your son, has he ever talked to you about wanting to do that? Yes, he keeps telling me I want to leave. My son said, either I go illegally or get me a visa to leave the country. One of my daughters, I spent 20K a year to make her study. And when she got her diploma, she sat here with no work. But then she moved to Switzerland and now she's working and having a good life. I mean, I wish my son stays with me. I want him to help me when, when, I, when I become old, like I am helping my 105 years mother now. But uh, I don't see a future for him here. He remembers when a street vendor named Mohamed Brazizi set himself on fire all those years ago, which led to Tunisia's revolution that overthrew a dictator. We had hopes, big hopes. Then those people, those politicians, came from abroad and, and settled here. And, and we thought they're going to make us a better situation and so on. But it was a cake. They split it between them and uh, they left us the leftovers, you know. That wasn't enough for us to stop feeling hungry. When Mohamed Barazizi set himself on fire, he couldn't afford his life. It doesn't sound like life has gotten better for young men in this country 12 years later. <laughs> if Bouazizi was alive, he would set himself on fire again. Post-revolution governments didn't reform systemic corruption and cronyism. The country's debt keeps growing. Add to that the pandemic and then the war in Ukraine, and there are acute food shortages, soaring energy prices, inflation and unemployment keep rising, and the economy could collapse if Tunisia doesn't secure another IMF loan, and that requires cutbacks that will be painful and unpopular. Were you surprised when you started seeing Tunisians take this route? No, it doesn't surprise me when I see the general situation of the country. I'm 60 and, and from the sea I, uh, I rose three kids. Young people now, they cannot afford anything, even if they work their whole life. I have a kid who's 15 now, he's my only son, and I keep keeping him in, in Tunisia. But, you know, he can't even find someone in the, in the neighborhood to, to play with because most of male population left the country. If you go to schools, for a class with 35 pupils, you'll find 33 uh, girls and two boys. Most of the boys left. So your boy can't even find friends? Have a walk around the city and you're going to see. So we did. We stop at a high school where teens are getting out for lunch. Most are teenage girls. And then we head to the city center, where we find a group of 21-year-olds sipping coffee and scrolling through their phones. Oh, Beirut. <laughs> Beirut. 
Muntasir Kardemi jokes with me about my Lebanese accent and then invites us to sit with him. He's hanging out in a black knockoff Dior sweatshirt. What are you working now? I'm not working. You're not working? At home. Is it hard to find work? Well, it's so hard. So, when you finished high school, what have you been doing? Mm, I want to leave Tunisia. You know, we've been talking to a lot of people who even are taking the illegal route to leave Tunisia. Do you have a, yeah. have a lot of your friends done yeah, that? Yeah, many friends. How many? My friends in France. They live in France? Aye. Yeah. How many friends have left of your friends? One, two hundred. A lot? A lot. Canada. Do they go with visa or do they go on the ships? To uh, visa and ships. Both ways. Yeah. Serbia. They go to Serbia, then they cross uh, the border to Austria, then Switzerland, and then France. Okay. They cross the border illegally. Are you thinking about doing that? Yeah, I'm thinking in the future. But it's dangerous. Very dangerous. So why would you do it? We have not a solution. What's the biggest problem here? Finding jobs and employment. There's nothing. What do you want to do? I want to leave Tunisia. How, how many? don't on the ship or the, no risk, no risk. And fly Emirates. <laughs> you want to fly Emirates? Qatar Airways. <laughs> At least 544 people drowned off the coast trying to cross the sea this year. Some were Tunisians. It's why the wall next to the cafe is covered in graffiti that reads, The Country of Death. It's a reference to a makeshift boat that sank in September with 18 Tunisians on board. Young men, but also young women and a one-year-old girl. Her name was Sajida. Weeks later, fishermen began recovering bodies, one identified only by the blue shorts he wore. Seven have been returned to their families. The rest are still missing. So most families have no one to bury. Munira Karimi wants the local government to give her answers about her 18-year-old son, Rayan Audi and her two nephews who were on that boat. Every day, she protests by sitting across from the municipal building. Other mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers of the missing join her on blue plastic chairs in the shade of a blooming tree. We've been uh, sitting here for uh, three months trying to get news. If they're dead, they can just bring them and, and, and drop them here in the street and then we'll know that they are dead. Munira, if you could tell me why your son and your nephews decided to travel. My son wanted me to stop working in homes. He wanted a better situation for me. I remember once I was going home from after work and he was walking behind me and he was crying because he saw how tired was his mother. All, all my son wanted when he left is to improve his mother's situation. But what happened is, is, is what happened. He wanted to be mechanical so that he, he goes to France. Is anything better? Are there jobs? Are there opportunities for young people? The situation is very hard with lack of everything. You cannot find one single uh, bottle of milk in, in, in all Zaziz. So what, what do you expect people to do? Of course, they, they're going to try to go abroad and, and make their own situation better. I mean, I remember when we went to the mayor of uh, Mednin and told him that our sons left illegally. 
we, we told him, imagine it was your son. And he answers, no, my son takes the plane to go abroad. He doesn't go on, on a trip. Should our children die because they're not the sons of the mayor? Another woman jumps in here, Wafat Jertini. Her brother, Mohammed, was also on the boat. He was 27, just 10 months older than her. This country is killing its children. Imagine uh, my brother is dead and I cannot find him. You think this is normal? She pulls out her phone. So she's showing us a video of her brother on a motorcycle and on a four-wheeler and his sunglasses, laughing and happy in her town. He was a normal guy, you know, uh, living a normal life. Uh, the most thing he wanted is to make my mother happy. On December 17th, there's another parliamentary election. Are you going to vote? Why not? No, I'm not voting. I don't like this country anymore. The day she can finally bury her brother, she says, she will leave Tunisia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the outgoing ambassador for young people's literature reflects on his approach to serving in the position. And in 20 minutes, the last Confederate owned, the last city-owned Confederate monument goes down in Richmond, Virginia. It's 820. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com slash careers. A California entrepreneur is building affordable homes in south-central Los Angeles at half the usual cost. How? By saying no to public funding. Low-income communities need development, they need new capital, but they need it to be done in a way that really benefits the entire community. And one of the underlying principles we have is same neighbors, better neighborhoods. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A heads up for Redline T riders. There are delays of up to 20 minutes right now on the Braintree branch because of a broken down train at JFK UMass. Sunny today with a high near 40. There might be some gusty winds. It'll still be windy tonight when we'll have mostly clear skies and a low around 22. Tomorrow, sunny and windy with a high near 36. Right now, it's 27 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab with a variety of financial planning options from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant. Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow, today. More at schwab.com plan. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm e. Martinez. Some ambassadors handle multilateral negotiations and host elaborate events at embassies. But author Jason Reynolds spent his ambassadorship talking to young people about literature. It'll become clear why when I tell you that today he finishes his term as the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. The Library of Congress appointed him to the post three years ago. So, Jason, first off, previous uh, National Ambassadors for Young People's Literature served two-year terms. You're finishing up your third year. How'd you end up getting three years to do this? I asked for it. You know, I think at the end of the day, I'm a person who likes to follow through and get the job done. And because of the pandemic, I was stifled and was left dissatisfied. And so I asked the Library of Congress for one more year so that I can carry out the actual platform that I had planned. What kind of things did you feel that you couldn't get to in the, in the, in the limited two-year span that you had that made you want to ask for that third year? The kids. I couldn't get to, I couldn't like actually get to them, right? Like, so I had moments where we did virtual tours for many, many schools, which was cool, but it's not the same as being in the building. And, I, and I, it's very important for me to create like these human moments with young people, and that requires physical presence. And so I would have taken a fourth year if I had to in order to ensure that I got an opportunity to do that. What have your responsibilities been in this position? Oh, my response, I mean, my, the, the responsibility that's given to me in terms of the actual, like the way that the position is laid out is, is just what it says, right? To be the ambassador for reading and writing for young people in this country. The way that I decided to interpret that, though, is how could I convince young people who may not like to read that they have a story of their own and that their story is as important as everything that their teachers and parents are trying to get them to read. When kids tell you that they don't like to read, what are typically some of the reasons why? It's boring. That is the reason why. It's boring unless we're talking about sort of learning differences, right, which is a very different conversation. But for the most part, young people don't like to read because it's boring and because it takes too long. By the way, I don't disagree with these things. I don't think all reading is boring, but I do think some reading is boring. And I think it's unfair for us to act like we as adults don't know that to be true. There are lots of kids looking for different things. I think there are some young people growing up in environments where they're desperately seeking to, to escape and see themselves slay the dragon. And for those young people, we have tons of books for them, right? But I also think that there are other young folks who are just looking for a starting point, and that starting point needs to look and feel and sound and taste like them. You know, if, if I, as a black person, when I walk in a room and I spot other black people in that room, it makes me feel safe. And after I spot those black folk, I can see everybody much more clearly. Right. I'm, I'm open in a different way. Right. I think that's a that's human. That's a human thing. And it's no different when it comes to literature. So is is books being boring? Is, the, is that the reason why you didn't finish a book for the first time since you were what, 17 years old? I mean, that's par partially. You know. <laughs> what are the other reasons? <laughs> that I didn't think that I, that I felt like they were disconnected from my reality. I felt like books were almost in some passive way judging me for being who I was simply by erasing me from the canon in and of itself. If I'm not shown or if I don't exist in, in a story, then that means that somebody doesn't find my life valuable enough to talk about. One book will never be enough, right? Like we could write 500,000 books and it still won't capture the Latinx experience, right? Which means that, there, that, that when we talk about diversity, it's not just diversity and creating space for Latinx communities or black communities or LGBTQIA plus communities. It's also writing diverse versions of those stories because there's so many different versions to tell, right? We're, we're all human beings. What was that first book you finished? It was Richard Wright's Black Boy. And and the reason I finished it is because the second page of the book, young Richard Wright sets the curtains on fire and burns his grandmother's house down. 
which means this isn't going to be a boring book. Why should I have to wait 100 pages to get to the good part? Richard Wright, he hooked me. And then after he hooked me, I was willing to go along for the ride. I remember my first book. It was, uh, you're going to laugh at this, though, but I'll, I'll, I'll admit it to you, Animal Farm by George Orwell. I'm not going to laugh at that, man. <laughs> that thing gripped me and I, you know, because it, it had to deal with animals. I love reading about animals. And so I imagined the animals. It took a while for me to understand what that book was about. But at least I read it all the way through. Absolutely. And the feeling of completion is, is half the battle. Like once you get to the end of a thing, the endorphin rush of knowing yeah. that you did it just makes you want to do it again. Especially those last few chapters when, when you know bedtime's coming, but you got a few chapters to go and you just want to keep on reading until you end it because you can't drop the book. You can't put it down. Exactly. We always hear about the term learning loss in schools because of the last few years of the pandemic, a very, very big problem. But in talking to you, Jason, and realizing what your role is, National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, can you, can you imagine how much reading loss there's been over the past few years? Yeah, it's 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 definitely something to consider. And it's a scary thing. But, but you know, I'll be honest with you, as concerned as I am about reading loss and learning loss, I'm not nearly as concerned about that than I am with the loss for the desire to live. And so, though I want young people to catch up, what I know is that's something that is possible, right? We can catch up on the reading loss. We can catch up on some of the, the deficiencies that have taken place or that, that may have been settling in now. But what we can't do is catch up on a young person who decides that they've just had enough, that they feel so insignificant that they're ready to hang it up. And I'm more concerned with pouring love and, and compassion and hope and grace and patience into young people. Because at the end of the day, though I love books, uh, they're just not as important as the young people themselves. Now, you're finishing up, we mentioned uh, your third year as National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. If you could do a fourth year, Jason, or if the next person asked you for advice, what would you tell them? Mm. What would you want them to do? I think, you know, whoever takes on this role next, all I want them to do is make sure that they understand that this is not an award. This is a job. It's a real responsibility, uh, which means that they have to throw themselves at it with all the fervor and love uh, in their being to make sure that the young people of this country knows that we care, not just about whether or not they read or write, but that we care about them. Stories happen to be the most human thing we have to offer. Right. Which means that the work that we're doing in storytelling is actually human work. And I just want to make sure the next person understands that as they take on the task. That is Jason Reynolds, who for the past three years has served as the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Jason, thanks. I appreciate you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, more than 40 African leaders have arrived in Washington for a key summit hosted by President Biden with the specter of Chinese and Russian influence looming in the background. It's 829. If you're looking for the perfect holiday gift, tickets to WBUR City Space's winter season are now on sale. You can check out the lineup of new and returning guests and get tickets at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, now offering gift memberships. Give a year of art and inspiration while also providing vital support to the museum. ICABoston.org. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is expected to sign legislation today protecting same-sex and interracial marriages in the U.S. Here's NPR's Windsor Johnston. The White House says the legislation will give peace of mind to millions of same-sex and interracial couples by guaranteeing them the rights and protections that they're entitled to. The bill passed both chambers of Congress with bipartisan support after lawmakers made some last-minute revisions to the measure. One of the amendments clarifies that religious organizations wouldn't be required to recognize or perform same-sex marriages. Snow and ice are in the forecast today from northern Colorado to Wisconsin. The National Weather Service has issued winter storm warnings over a wide area. NPR's Giles Snyder says blizzard warnings are in effect in sections of a half dozen states, including Nebraska, Wyoming, and South Dakota. In South Dakota, the State Department of Public Safety is urging people to stock up and stay home, tweeting that this is a we-are-not-kidding kind of storm. Some major roads got icy overnight, and state officials are warning of potential road closures. The National Weather Service says the same storm system could lead to tornadoes and flash flooding in Texas and Louisiana. The weather will move onto the East Coast later this week. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor-elect Maura Healey is making her first three personnel appointments today. Two are currently key figures in the attorney general's office. The third is in charge of budgeting in the UMass system. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Healy will name Matt Gorkowitz as Secretary of Administration and Finance. For the last decade, Gorkowitz has had a similar role in the UMass President's Office, overseeing the system's $3.8 billion budget. He has also worked for the state Senate, some state agencies, and served as an Assistant Secretary of Budgeting in the Patrick Administration. As ANF Secretary, Gorkowitz will be Healy's point man on all budget matters. Healy is also naming Kate Cook, her current first assistant AG, to serve as the administration's chief of staff, and Gabriel Viator as her senior advisor. Viator is currently chief deputy attorney general in Healy's office. Healy takes over as governor on January 5th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The board representing MIT's police union is issuing a no-confidence vote in the department's chief. The union says it does not believe the chief or his management team can effectively lead the department. The university's officers have been working without a contract since July. The union argues wages have not kept up with the cost of living. MIT has not responded to WBUR's request for comment. Dedham officials will put up Christmas trees at libraries around town after initially saying they wouldn't. The decision comes after town officials were accused by some residents of banning Christmas, leading to online threats and bullying. Officials say they originally chose not to put up trees to respect a range of beliefs in the community. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. The Patriots topped the Cardinals 27-13 last night in Arizona. The Pats will visit the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday. The Celtics lost to the Clippers 113-93 last night in Los Angeles. Tonight, the Celtics wrap up their road trip with a game against the Lakers. The Bruins are at the Garden tonight to take on the New York Island. 
Islanders. In your forecast, clear skies, windy and near 40 today. Mostly clear tonight, still windy with mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny, mid-30s and windy. Mostly cloudy and mid-40s on Thursday. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. Delegations and leaders from nearly 50 African countries have arrived in Washington for a key summit hosted by President Joe Biden. The U.S. African Leaders Summit is the centerpiece of an effort to reset and improve U.S. ties with the continent at a moment when ties with China and increasingly Russia have attracted scrutiny. To hear more, we're joined now by NPR's new West Africa correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwadu in Lagos, Nigeria. Emmanuel, welcome. Good morning, Rob. So happy to be speaking with you. Uh, Emmanuel, how important is this summit to U.S. officials? It's really important in that it's kind of a central part of resetting U.S.-Africa relations. Um, You know, over the last decade, we've seen the importance of Africa to other powers like the EU, Turkey, Russia really grow. And we see that particularly with Lagos and everything from the train lines to the new port to uh, new agriculture plants are being built from Chinese loans and assistance. Hmm. And this kind of thing is happening all across Africa. Meanwhile, U.S. engagement has really lagged behind. You know, it's been eight years since the last summit in Washington was held by President Obama. And African diplomats I've spoken to recently They say there was a lot of promise at that summit, but it largely went unfulfilled. And then there was the Trump years, President Trump's years and his America first policy, and obviously his disparaging comments about some African countries, which weren't helpful. So this really is a moment where the U.S. are hoping to reboot and reframe that relationship. Reboot and reframe who will be at this summit and what do we expect to see over the next few days? Well, there'll be um, over 40 African heads of state, most likely. And, you know, an interesting figure who will be there is Ethiopia's prime minister, Abiy Ahmed. You know, he's led a two-year war in his country that has effectively seen a blockade of the northern Tigray region in Ethiopia by his government. Um, Abiy's going to meet Secretary of State uh, Blinken. And the U.S. played a part in bringing about the recent ceasefire agreement in Ethiopia. And then there are some leaders who have not been invited, like, for example, leaders of Sudan, Burkina Faso, Guinea, because the African Union have, has expelled them and, you know, following coups and rights abuses. Wow. But it also highlights another challenge for the U.S. because countries like Russia and China aren't as sensitive to human rights concerns in the same way as the U.S. is. And what we expect from the summit, Rob, is the U.S. is going to announce its support as it kind of has touted in recent days for the African Union seat at the G20 and for a multi-country trip from uh, President Biden to Africa in the next year. But something that has been quite striking is there's not really been a focus on a single policy. 
um, or a signature policy. And so we'll see whether that emerges. Right. Uh, Now, Emmanuel, you mentioned China and Russia. How much competition do these countries pose when it comes to what the U.S. is hoping to do in Africa? I think the U.S. sees China and Russia as being in competition for influence and access to Africa's rapidly expanding market, um, natural resources, economy, and really China and Russia, the U.S. sees China and Russia as attempting to be more integral to developing this huge and vitally important continent. Um, And there's a a concern that a lot of this easy money and infrastructure might shift the balance of power towards Chinese and Russian interests. You know, Russia's influence isn't as extensive, but it is significant in maintaining Mm -hmm. relations with African countries over a period where the U.S. has drifted. But on the other hand, African countries really aren't interested in being drawn into a wider rivalry between the U.S., China and Russia. Um, And they see this as an opportunity to you know, put their foot down and, and, and engage with the U.S. on their terms. Thank you. That's Emmanuel Akinwadu. He's NPR's West Africa correspondent in Lagos. Emmanuel, thank you. Thanks, Rob. The city of Richmond, Virginia, is almost done removing dozens of statues of Confederate monuments. It's a process that was set in motion two years ago after demonstrators began toppling them during racial justice protests. Jack Khalil of VPM News brings us this story about the removal this week of the very last city-owned statue. On this cold Monday morning, dozens of students are watching history from Richmond's north side neighborhood. Workers are removing a statue of Confederate General Ambrose Powell Hill, known here as A.P. Hill. Virginia had to pass a state law to remove most statues, but this last one was different. That's because the general's remains are believed to be inside. School administrator Alana Smith says the occasion was a chance for a hard conversation with her students. This was really a beautiful opportunity to say, hey, something amazing is happening. Let's talk about it. Months ago, indirect descendants of Hills challenged the city's plans for the statue. A judge sided with the city last week. This isn't the first time these remains were moved. The last time was in 1891, when Confederate descendants were trying to write their version of history. They use monuments as part of this misinformation campaign. Christina Vita is the curator of the Valentine Museum in Richmond. To really twist the public's understanding and perception of the cause for the Civil War, which was, of course, slavery. Confederate monuments eventually became a symbol of the city of Richmond. Monroe Harris is the acting director of the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia. Being African-American and someone taking you to see some Confederate generals, it it just, it it was mind-blowing. Harris remembers taking a tour of the city when he first arrived in 1988. The first stop at Monument Avenue left him aghast, he says. We had never seen monuments that large. The city gave the Black History Museum ownership of all the monuments removed in 2020. Harris says they're taking the responsibility seriously. We hopefully will do the best thing to hopefully put them in a context that is acceptable and thoughtful for everybody. Back at the site of the removal, the smell of burning metal wafts down into the crowd. A crane lifts the statue onto a nearby flatbed truck. School administrator Alana Smith stands with her students. Some of them are asking, you know, now that the statue come down, what can we put up instead? That's a question the city is working out. Another question, what will be the ultimate fate of A.P. Hill and his fellow statues? Museum curators are seeking community input on that. For now, they say just the fact that they're gone is something the city can be proud of. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Richmond.
Coming up later today on All Things Considered, we have a preview of Wednesday's match for a chance to reach the World Cup final. Morocco is the first African and Arab team to ever reach a semifinal, and now it faces defending champion France. Now, the two countries share cultural, language, and family ties, and also a complicated colonial history. To listen, please stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, I talked to Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss ahead of his committee's hearing on the FTX cryptocurrency collapse. The FTX founder was supposed to testify, but was instead arrested in the Bahamas. In your forecast, near 40 today and windy under sunny skies, mostly clear tonight with continuing gusty winds and temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny, windy, and mid-30s. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 8 We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Now, in business news, Cambridge-based Moderna says it has seen positive results in a potential skin cancer vaccine. A clinical trial paired the Moderna vaccine with an immunotherapy from Merck. It saw a 44 percent drop in the risk of death or the cancer returning. We should note these results have not yet been peer-reviewed. Moderna says the next round of clinical trials will begin next year. Newton-based Tech Target says it will lay off 60 employees. That accounts for about 5 percent of its workforce. The Boston Business Journal reports the cuts come as the IT company missed its quarterly revenue goal. Two Back Bay restaurants made the list of top 100 restaurants in the U.S. The online reservation site Open Table says Abe & Louis and Atlantic Fish Company are among the most beloved restaurants by its users. Open Table says the list was determined by more than 13 million verified reviews. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The former CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX is now in custody. Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested yesterday in the Bahamas. An indictment against him will be unsealed today. Despite that, the House Financial Services Committee on Capitol Hill will go ahead with its planned hearing today into FTX. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss is on the committee and he joins us now. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning. What action can the committee take today after Bankman's arrest and going forward? The American people deserve to hear under oath the mechanics of Sam Bankman Freed's lies. He lied to his employees, he lied to Congress, he lied to his investors, to the American public. And it was some of the oldest crimes with some of the newest technology. And under oath, 
uh, he needs to answer for it. Uh, reflecting on what's happened with FTX, do you think that the committee could have been stronger in its actions? Well, I think the SEC could have prioritized its enforcement actions better. In October of 2021, I asked the SEC chairman what new laws he needed to better enforce compliance against crypto exchanges. He said none. He had what he needed. And yet it was clear that they were going after minnows while whales were swimming through. And I think the SEC does need to do a, a retroactive analysis of how it's doing enforcement, because when a major criminal gets away with something, or not gets away, but when a major criminal is caught, I should say, it's fair to ask the top cop on the beat why did it take so long. Okay. You've pointed out that you've supported regulating cryptocurrency, and I want to ask you more about that. But am I also right that you and some other committee members wrote a letter to the Justice Department to advise against looking into the cryptocurrency industry? No. In fact, this is what I'm referring to, is we wrote a letter telling the SEC, you've got to enforce your prioritization actions better. The SEC has said that they don't have the resources to go after all the non-compliant actors in the space. We, they need more resources, clearly, but they also need to be prioritizing going after the whales, not the minnows. And I maintain that that is the case. We clearly have a situation where there needs to be a, a hierarchy because when a major crypto exchange is doing Super Bowl ads is simultaneously committing blatant crimes, uh, we've got an issue with enforcement. Okay, so it sounds like you were trying to direct their efforts uh, or advise about directing their efforts. Uh, but Politico, I, I'm sure you saw the reporting about you receiving $5,800 in campaign contributions from Bankman Freed, along with some other donations from FTX bosses before that letter was sent and, and linking those. Is that inappropriate? The the implication there is totally erroneous because I've been saying the same thing about crypto since before I even came to Congress, which is it needs strong, clear regulations that protect consumers, advance market integrity, and advance the U.S. dollar. What is your position on what you're going to do with that donation? Are you going to re return it or not? Catherine Clark said it's well, up to individuals <laughs> to decide. I'm not going to send money to a guy sitting in a Bahama jail, that's for sure. That money is out the door helping elect Democrats. And we've seen already that under the leadership of Chairwoman Waters, Democrats and the Financial Services Committee have held bad actors to account across a range of industries. Okay, to go back to the regulation of the cryptocurrency industry, what kind of specific regulations do you think Congress could enact to, to rein in this kind of emergency? Well, there is a range of applications for blockchain technology, so we're going to need a range of updated regulations and, and laws because some of it is a commodity and needs to be the CFTC, some of it's a security and needs to be the SEC, some of it may be a new type of asset that needs a special digital asset definition. Uh, to me, the nearest term uh, imperative is stablecoin legislation because the SEC has asserted that they already have the laws they need to, to regulate um, securities fraud. Uh, and so we can give the SEC more resources while passing stablecoin legislation that ensures that, that this application of blockchain, which is probably the most wide, widely used, especially overseas, has extremely strong and clear reserve ratio and auditing requirements so that consumers are protected. Congressman Jake Auchincloss, thank you so much for joining WBUR's Morning Edition. Thanks for your time.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report continues its commemoration of the birth of the transistor. The technology is 75 years old this week. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Good morning, Rupa. Well, there's one that I think might be a little close to your heart because I do believe you're from the Konkan region of South India. We're going to be talking fish curry. <laughs> uh, that's a fun one. It's a family traditional recipe of one of our listeners. But we're also going to be covering the news of the day. There are many migrants arriving at the south, the southern border. There's a big African-U.S. leaders summit happening, which we're going to talk about. And We have spoken with the new mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. She is the first woman ever to lead the nation's second largest city. She's the second African-American mayor. We're going to talk to her about some of the many issues that she is faced with on day one of her administration. She declared a state of emergency on homelessness. So we're going to talk to her about whether that will work and, and why she did it. Oh, that's awesome. And I hope you get some fish curry out of the interview today. Thank you. Uh, You know, I hope so, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. There's a chance Tobias Gesso Jr. has written your favorite pop song. He's worked with artists like Adele, Harry Styles, and FKA Twigs. It's unbelievable to me that here I am working with these artists. I feel like I'm in the documentaries I used to watch. I'm Ari Shapiro. How a choice to stay out of the spotlight could win Tobias Gesso Jr. a Grammy this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. There's news that inflation cooled more than expected. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. We have word the consumer price index went up just a tenth of a percent in November. That means prices are up 7.1 percent year over year, the mildest reading in a year. It's a hint that while interest rates will go up tomorrow, as expected, maybe the increases won't need to be as sharp next year. S&P futures shot skyward up 2.3 percent now for the Nasdaq, up 3.3 percent. Sam Bankman-Fried, founder of the fallen cryptocurrency firm FTX, has been arrested in the Bahamas with criminal and today civil charges filed. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York says Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest was at the request of the U.S. government. Officials plan to unseal an indictment later today detailing criminal charges against Bankman-Fried. He will likely be extradited to the U.S. In a separate action, the Securities and Exchange Commission accused Bankman-Fried of secretly diverting customer funds. The actions come just a month after FTX filed for bankruptcy protection amid the crypto equivalent of a bank run. In public statements, Bankman-Fried said he's made mistakes but did not knowingly misuse customer funds. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Prisma Sassy from Palo Alto Networks. Secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. It's zero trust with zero exceptions. More at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Fidelity Investments, introducing Fidelity Income Planning. Build a plan for income that lasts. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. And by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps get rid of them. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at avalara.com. The future began 75 years ago with the invention of a device that's seen as the most manufactured item in human history. The transistor was born in New Jersey December 16th. 1947. All this week, we're looking at the ecosystems of innovation that turned that invention into so much of what we call modern civilization. I have to wear protective gloves, but I'm actually right now holding in my hand the first transistor, a cockeyed metal spring pushing a kind of arrowhead wrapped in gold foil down into a shard of germanium, the semiconductor, all that on top of a metal base. On this campus in Jersey, 45 minutes west of Manhattan, researchers on the payroll of a private company figured out how to make an amplifier that didn't need much power and an on-off switch with no moving parts. This fundamental invention gets us to portable and digital everything. It was called Bell Telephone Laboratories, the research arm of AT&T. At its height, boy, did it have money because it was a company with no rival. Physicist Michael Reardon is co-author of the history of the transistor, Crystal Fire. Bell Labs was kind of like a national laboratory in a way, but it was funded by the American people. I'm old enough to remember when we had to pay a dollar for the first minute of a coast-to-coast telephone call called a toll call. And three cents out of that dollar went into R&D, mainly at Bell Labs. So it had the stream of funding and gave them a lot of freedom to follow, you know, their research noses. Yeah, I mean, being a lab that's connected to a monopoly affords you certain privileges. That second voice is John Gertner, author of The Idea Factory, Bell Labs in the Great Age of American Innovation. So the timelines are sort of different. I mean, do you have to beat the competition to market? Not really. Can you work on a system for switching or transmission that might take 10 years or 15 years? Yes, you can, actually. A hundred years ago, AT&T was the biggest company in the world and rich enough to scoop up talent even during lean times. Bell Labs had money to hire people in the Great Depression at a time when a lot of universities did not and a lot of companies did not. Brilliant scientists where Bell Labs could really hire the best and brightest. Like physicists John Bardeen, Walter Bratton, and William Shockley, who shared a Nobel Prize for the transistor in 1956. Nine Nobels traced to here. Ed Eckert is an archivist at the present Bell Labs as he looks over original homegrown artifacts. The cellular concept made cell phones practical. Commercial fax machine, satellite pioneer with Telstar 1, solar cells, the science of radio astronomy. And we discovered the leftover radiation that was considered proof of the Big Bang Theory. Bell Labs survived the court-ordered breakup of the AT&T monopoly in 1984, and some of its culture lives on. These days, it's one of the research centers owned since 2016 by Nokia of Finland. 
Peter Vetter is president of Nokia Bell Labs Core Research, where even today there's room for raw exploration. When a researcher comes to me, I, I, I have here an intuition that there is a new way of solving the problem. They can go after that and say, okay, this, this sounds good. We put them in, in contact with different experts, the device physics people, some AI algorithmic people, so that they can really enrich the idea. With wireless, about every 10 years it's a new G, and Vetter's folks are now working on 6G, plus crazy fast quantum computing and a new not-so-small step for mankind, the first cellular network on, on the moon. This is Nokia, but you may well ask why the Bell Lab transistor didn't turn AT&T in the 1950s and 60s into another IBM or Sony. We'll see even decades before AT&T's breakup, officials in Washington didn't want a monopoly phone company nosing into other businesses like computers. They were sort of bound by various agreements with the federal government that they were in the telecommunications business. So Bell Labs' parent company more or less open-sourced the transistor, not for free, but it sold licenses to other firms and trained them in the theory for not much. This allowed transistor technology to travel to Texas and California, where the semiconductor revolution really takes hold. We'll have more on that tomorrow. And we have a keynote interview with the current head of core research at Nokia Bell Labs. It'll be at marketplace.org, streamable if you miss it on the air today, where all of our Transistor at 75 stories are accumulating on the homepage. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be a little bit warmer today, but windy, sunny, and near 40. Tonight we'll have mostly clear skies, mid-20s, and the high winds keep up. Sunny and still windy tomorrow in the mid-30s, mostly cloudy and mid-40s on Thursday. Right now it's 29 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. A California entrepreneur is building affordable homes in South Central Los Angeles at half the usual cost. How? By saying no to public funding. Low-income communities need development, they need new capital, but they need it to be done in a way that really benefits the entire community. And one of the underlying principles we have is same neighbors, better neighborhoods. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.